Brothers and sisters, would you please open with me to John chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 24 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. No Old Testament reading today. In John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, we read these words. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So you are quickly seeing that we are in that portion of John's gospel that is dealing with Christ's resurrection and the appearances that he made to his disciples after his resurrection. But Thomas was not with them at first when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Dear brothers and sisters, I do realize that this might seem like an unusual text, to highlight on this Sunday prior to Christmas. Actually, I could kind of feel it as I began to read the congregation uh, thinking, does he think it's Easter? You know, This text, uh, if it were to be associated with one of our traditional holidays, would be associated with Easter, the day upon which the church traditionally gives special attention to the resurrection of Christ. For here in John 20, we encounter the risen Christ. The reason that I have decided to highlight this particular passage on this Sunday prior to Christmas is so that I might urge you to do more than remember the birth of Christ during this holiday season. Of course, I I do hope that you would remember His birth. I hope that you would stand in awe of the wonder of the Incarnation. In fact, if you join us on Christmas Eve, we will give special attention to the birth of Christ by reading the narrative of Christ's birth from one of the Gospels, actually from Luke. But as we remember the birth of Christ, I pray that we would also be mindful of his whole life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and all that it is that he has accomplished thereby. And having considered Christ in this way, that is to say, not only Christ in the manger, but also Christ in the world, and Christ on the cross, and in the tomb, and in the clouds, I pray that you would understand what it is that he has accomplished on behalf of sinners, and come to place your faith in him ultimately. Friends, understand that Christ was born into this world in order to accomplish something. His birth, which we traditionally celebrate this time of year, marked the beginning of the accomplishment of a mission given to Him by God before the world was created. Christ Himself spoke of this mission when He prayed to God before His disciples, as recorded for us in John 17. He said to the Father, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ you have, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, etc., etc. The Lord's prayer here, this high priestly prayer of Christ, goes on and on. But when this prayer of Christ is considered in its entirety, it is clear that Christ was born into this world to redeem those given to him by the Father from before the foundation of the earth. This was his mission, to accomplish the salvation of God's elect, to reveal himself to them, and to bring them safely home to the Father. And this is the work that Christ accomplished through his active and passive obedience. He actively kept the law of God, and this he did on behalf of sinners like you and me who are unable to keep God's law for themselves. And Christ also passively obeyed God. This means that He suffered on behalf of sinners like you and me who deserve to suffer because of their sins. Christ suffered in the whole of His life, but particularly on the cross. We might also say that Christ accomplished the redemption of God's elect through His humiliation and exaltation. Uh, By His humiliation, we mean He became low for us. He was born into this world and placed in a lowly manger. Indeed, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8 says. But having died and having been placed in the grave, this same Christ was also exalted For our redemption, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ has accomplished our redemption by his humiliation and also his exaltation. Brothers and sisters, the Christ was born into this world in order to accomplish the redemption of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Christ accomplished this redemption when He was born into this world by His life, His death, and His resurrection. There is nothing more to be done, for He Himself said, It is finished. But the question remains, how do we come to partake of the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us? How do we come to partake of it? This question should actually sound familiar to you. Our catechism Uh, poses this question for us. How does that thing that Christ has earned for His elect so long ago come to be theirs in time? How do we lay a hold of it or benefit from it? How do we benefit from the thing that Christ has purchased? Uh, Again, this should sound familiar to you. Uh, Our catechism asks this question, and I want you to listen to it. I think it is a very good question and answer. Actually, there are two of them provided by our catechism, the Baptist Catechism asks, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? How do we come to benefit from what He earned so long ago? And the answer given is that we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. This is a good and biblical answer. God the Father sent the Son to earn our redemption. God the Son came to accomplish our redemption. And what does God the Holy Spirit do? He is the one who applies the redemption that Christ has earned to the elect of God by His effectual calling. 
Now, question 33 brings more clarity to the issue by asking, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? How does the Spirit do it? And the answer is that the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. I want you to notice two things about these questions and answers. First of all, in order for a person to partake of the redemption purchased by Christ, the Spirit of God must do a work within them and upon them. We usually use the word, this terminology. In order for a person to be saved, right? In order for a person to be saved, the Spirit of God must do a work within them and upon them. This is the true teaching of Holy Scripture. Man, now that he has fallen into sin, is said to be spiritually blind, deaf, lame, and even dead. Left to ourselves, we do not naturally run to God, do we? But we instead run away from Him. Indeed, now that we are fallen, we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor, says Heidelberg, question 5. We are inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And so do fallen humans have the ability to make free choices and to act upon those choices? We would all say yes, they do. But do they have the ability to run after God, to please Him, or to believe upon Him? We say, no, we do not have this ability within our natural selves now that we have fallen into sin, because our souls are at enmity with God. This is why Christ Himself said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.44 Did you hear it? No one can, no one is able to come to Me unless the Father does something. Unless the Father draws him, and then I will raise him up on the last day. And again, a bit further down in John 6, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 6, 65. If anyone comes to Christ, it is only because the Father has granted this privilege to them. If anyone comes to Christ, it is only because the Father has drawn that person to himself. And how does the Father draw sinners to himself? We know that it is through the preaching of the gospel and by the effective working and wooing of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you can remember the words of, uh, that, that Christ spoke to that man Nicodemus as recorded in John 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night wondering about how he might enter God's kingdom. That, sto- that story is very famous and should be familiar to you. This man comes and, and wants to know about entering into the kingdom of God. And what did Jesus say to that man Nicodemus? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. And a bit further down, Jesus answered again, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. For a person to see and for a person to enter God's kingdom, the Spirit of God must do a work upon them, the Scriptures say. That person must first be born again. Why? Because we are by nature dead in our trespasses and sins and unable to do that which is necessary to enter into God's kingdom, namely exercise faith in the Christ. And this is why Paul said what he said to the Christians living in Ephesus. In in Ephesians 2.1, we read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. He looks to the Christians and he says, This was you. You You were dead in your sins. 
But a little bit later he says that these Christians, they were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does the apostle say? You were, you were once dead, but God did a work in you and upon you. He made you alive. This He did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if a person is to partake of the redemption purchased by Christ so long ago, the Spirit of God must do a work in them and upon them. The Spirit must make them alive to God, and the Spirit must draw them to Christ. Now, secondly, notice the, that Baptist Catechism, question 33, indicates that there is something that we must do. There is something that we must do. It is true that God must do a work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is also true that there is something for us to do, namely, believe. We must believe upon the Christ. Listen again to the question number 33 from the Baptist Catechism, which asks, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The answer, again, is the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working what? By working faith in us and thereby, that is, by the faith, uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. What is it that unites us to Christ? What is it that brings about our actual partaking of the redemption purchased by Christ so long ago? Stated differently, what is, what is it that turns a guilty sinner into a saved sinner? A child of wrath into a child of God? What, what is it that brings about that transition? The scriptures are clear and our catechism is correct that it is faith. Faith is the instrument that brings about our enjoyment of the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us. Christ accomplished the redemption of the elect long ago. This is true, and that work is finished. And the Spirit of God must regenerate and effectually call sinners if they are to come to Christ. This also is the true teaching of Scripture, but this work is not finished. The Spirit is still doing this effectual work, isn't He? He's still active in the world, uh, applying the redemption that God has purchased so long ago to God's people. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him, Christ said. And this is the work that the Spirit of God is still doing in the world, renewing sinners and calling them to repentance. And it is also true that faith, that is the ability to believe upon Christ, is a gift from God. Did you hear our catechism? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. The Spirit is the one who works faith in us. This agrees with the words of the Apostle Paul who said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That faith, that is the, the ability to believe upon Christ, is a gift from God. You all recognize this, right? It is a gift from God. It is something that the Spirit of God works in us. But let me ask you this. Who is the one that must do the believing? Who is the one that must do the believing? Is it God or man who does the believing? Now, the answer should be obvious to all of us. It is man who must believe if he or she is to partake of the redemption purchased by Christ. Faith is a gift from God, this is true, but faith is something that must be exercised 
by the human if he or she is to be saved. This too is the clear teaching of Scripture. In fact, we find the Scriptures everywhere urging men and women, boys and girls, to turn from their sins and to believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They are urged by the Scriptures to make that choice, to make that decision. And do you remember the question that the Philippian jailer asked of Paul and Silas? Sirs, what must I do to be saved, he said. And what was their answer? It was very clear and very plain. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts 16.31. That was his answer. That was the answer given to them. What, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have the redemption that was purchased by Christ applied to me? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, the apostle said, along with Silas. And perhaps you noticed that this was the very reason that the apostle John stated for the writing of his gospel. In that text that we read at the beginning of this sermon, near the end of it, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. In other words, I didn't write them all down. They're not written in this book, but there were more of them. But these are written, John says, so that you may do what? So that you may believe. My, my objective in writing this gospel is to urge you, to compel you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by the believing, you may have life. In his name, John 20, 30, and 31. The Son has accomplished our redemption according to the will of the Father. The Spirit is applying the redemption earned by Christ to the elect. But men and women, boys and girls, must be urged to believe. And that is what I'm doing on this Sunday before Christmas. I am urging you to believe upon Jesus the Christ, who was laying in a manger at the time of his birth, who lived and died and rose again for sinners, who ascended to the Father's right hand, from whence He will one day return to judge the world in righteousness. Believe upon Him. Trust in Him. Place your faith in Him. Faith is that instrument whereby we come to partake of the redemption that has been purchased by Christ. But let me raise another question, and this will be the question that we focus on for the remainder of this sermon. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? What does it mean to have faith in Christ? I might implore you, believe upon Christ, have faith in Him, but what is involved in that? What does it mean? What does having true and saving faith involve? And I have four brief points to make. First of all, to have true and saving faith, you must know the gospel. To have true and saving faith, you must know the gospel. And I do wish for the emphasis to be upon the word know here in this point that I am making. To have true and saving faith, a person must know certain things. I have noticed that some in the world talk about faith as if the only thing that matters is that you have faith, that is, faith in something. Have you ever encountered uh, this, this sort of thinking in the world? Uh, the important thing is that you believe in something, they say. It is as if the act of believing in something, anything at all, is what matters. It's what makes a difference. It brings us some kind of salvation, I guess. But this is not what the Scriptures mean when they say, by grace you have been saved through faith. True and saving faith is faith in something particular. Even more specifically, true and saving faith is faith in someone particular, namely Jesus the Christ. And it should be recognized that the Scriptures often use the word faith to refer not to the act of believing, but to a collection of set doctrines. For example, when Jude wrote to Christians regarding their common salvation, 
he appealed to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is Jude saying? He is referring to, to the Christian faith. He is referring to a collection of set doctrines. And, and he is saying to, to the Christians, contend for that. Do not allow it to be distorted. In other words, stand up for uh, these truths. Protect them. Proclaim them. Preserve them. Pass them down to the next generation so that the faith be not distorted. Right? Uh, the word faith sometimes does describe the act of believing upon Christ, but sometimes it refers to a collection of doctrines. And this has always been the case for Christians. To have faith in Christ means, among other things, to enter into the faith, that is, to know and believe the collection of doctrines that Christ entrusted to His apostles and they to us. And so, no, friends, it's not the act of believing that makes the difference but it's the act of believing something in particular and in someone in particular. That is what the Scriptures are calling us to do when they call us to faith. That's the simple point that I'm making. Knowledge matters. Doctrine matters. You have to have some understanding in order to have true faith in Christ. To have true and saving faith, you must know the Gospel, which is the good news of Jesus the Christ. And if the good news of Jesus the Christ is to be understood, the story that is told in the Bible from the beginning to the end must be understood somewhat. Let me state the gospel succinctly. The gospel is that Jesus the Christ has atoned for, by His death and resurrection for, for sins, so that sinners, through faith in Him, might have their sins forgiven and be reconciled to God the Father. This is the gospel, I guess, stated very succinctly, perhaps too succinctly. But if you see that a person must know but, but do you see that a person must know something of the message of the Bible from beginning to end if they are to understand even the succinct gospel message? Without any knowledge of the Bible, they will have to ask, Well, who is God the Father? What is sin? What must, why must my sins be atoned for by another? Why through the shedding of blood? Who is this Jesus and why is he called the Christ? etc. etc. Knowledge is important. That's the point that I am making. In order for faith to be true and saving faith, certain truths must be known and understood. And what in particular must we know for our faith to be true and, and saving faith? Uh, this is really neither the time nor the place to give a thorough answer to that question. Uh, my intention here is simply to make the point that knowledge does matter. But some of the creeds and confessions of the church are very helpful. Our Orthodox Catechism, which is very much like the better-known Heidelberg Catechism, asks this question in question 22. What then must a person believe? Isn't that a good question? What, what, what then must a person believe? Must they be doctors in theology, you know, in order to be saved? Of course we say no. Uh, what then must a person believe? And, and the answer is this. Everything God promises us in the Gospel... That gospel is summarized for us in the articles of our Christian faith, a creed beyond doubt and confessed throughout the world. And then question 33 of that same catechism asks, what are these articles? And here is the answer, and it should sound familiar to you. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and He was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, that is not the Roman, but universal church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life and the life everlasting. Amen. What, what, what is this that I've just read? It is the Apostles' Creed. I think uh, this is indeed a beautiful summary of kind of the essential uh, truths of, of the Christian faith. Uh, it is a brief summary of, of that very thing, the essentials of, of Christian doctrine. The church has confessed this for a long, long time now. And so I ask you this question, do you know the gospel? Do you know what the Word of God teaches concerning God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you know what the Scriptures have to say regarding our great sin and misery? Do you know what the Bible says about Jesus the Christ, His birth, His life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the significance of these things? For some of you, now is the time for you to grow in your knowledge of these basic and essential truths. Really what I am getting at here, brothers and sisters, I think the modern church today has a very bad habit of calling people to place their faith in Jesus without ever teaching them a thing. And so there they exercise faith in in, in something. But it may not be faith in the truth of Scripture, and even more importantly, faith in Jesus the Christ. This is a problem. In order for faith to be true and saving, something must be known. You cannot say that you have faith if you do not know these things. It it may be that you have true faith. Uh, It may be that you have true faith, even if your knowledge of these doctrines is small and limited. You understand what I'm saying here. But you cannot say that your faith is true if your knowledge of the teaching of Holy Scripture is non-existent. Furthermore, I wonder if there is not a correlation between, between strong faith and deep knowledge of these truths and weak faith and a meager knowledge of these truths. And so, do you know the Word of God? Do you know the Gospel of God? Secondly, to have true and saving faith, you must believe that the Gospel is true. And here I simply wish to point out that there are many in this world who know the teaching of Holy Scripture and yet do not believe it. These have knowledge, but they do not have faith. It actually appears as if our friend Thomas, in that passage that was read earlier, was in this place for a time. He had heard the word that Jesus had risen from the grave. He had been exposed to the true doctrine, having sat under the teaching of Jesus for at least three years, but he did not believe the message, did he? At least not for a time. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe, Thomas says. Did he have the information? Yes, he did. But he did not believe it was true. And I suppose there are many in this world who have been exposed to the teaching of Holy Scripture, perhaps by their parents, by some other, or by their own reading of the text, who refuse to believe that what it says is true. These have knowledge, but they do not have faith. These might even know a great deal about the Scriptures. Perhaps their knowledge of the Bible is even greater than yours and mine, and yet they refuse to agree with its teaching. And So what I am saying is that knowledge does not save, friends. Faith does. Not only must we know the Bible, we must agree with its teaching and submit to it. Thirdly, to have true and saving faith, you must trust in Christ as offered to us in the gospel. I'd like to quote R.C. Sproul here. He writes, The crucial, most vital element of saving faith, in the biblical sense, 
is that of personal trust. That is, a fiduciary or or trusting commitment by which I put my life in the lap of Jesus. I trust Him and Him alone for my salvation. That is the crucial element, and it includes the intellectual and the mental, but it goes beyond it to the heart and to the will, so that the whole person is caught up in this experience we call faith. I think this is a beautiful statement. Uh, Friends, do you see that it is possible to know what the Bible teaches, and it is even possible to agree intellectually with what the Bible teaches, You say, I understand it, and I think it's true, but to not have saving faith, because there is no personal trust in Christ. There is no putting your life in the lap of Jesus, to quote again Sproul. There is no true and saving faith, if this is lacking. To have true faith in Christ is to say from the heart, I am in great need, and no one and nothing can meet that need except Christ alone. I set all of my hope and place all of my trust in Him, in His person, in His finished work for my salvation, you see. I sometimes wonder how many people gather with Christ's church, even on a weekly basis, who have this kind of false faith. They have knowledge, maybe even a lot of it. And they truly think that the things that they know are true and factual which is all fine and good. But do they trust in Christ and in Christ alone? Instead, their hope may be set upon some other thing, perhaps their own righteousness. Perhaps they think very highly of themselves and as if their keeping of the law will bring them eternal life. We have to trust in Christ and in Christ alone in order for our faith to be true. Fourthly and lastly, obedience to God's commands is evidence of a true and saving faith. Uh, Here I wish to very briefly address the question that some of you might be thinking, which is, how can I know that I have true and saving faith? How can I know it? Uh, This is the question of assurance, in fact. Uh, The the doctrine of assurance deals with this very thing. Uh, Is it possible for a person to know that they know Christ? Is it possible for a person to know that they possess true and saving faith? Our confession says, yes, it is possible. There is a way to get that assurance. Not all have it, though they should, if they are in Christ. Some have it when they should not have it. Do you understand what I'm referring to here? There are plenty who live in the world thinking, and and who are very assured of themselves, I am right with God, when they are in fact not. The Christian, though, the true Christian should pursue assurance and may obtain it. How can I have a sense of assurance that I really do know Christ and that my faith is true? In a way, this question is not difficult to answer. Let me ask you, do you know the teaching of Holy Scripture? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand it intellectually? Furthermore, do you confess that the teaching of Holy Scripture is indeed true? This gospel message that I have learned, I say, it is true. And more than that, have you placed your trust in Christ? Are you believing upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins, resting and hoping in Him and in Him alone and the work that He has accomplished for you? Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord through the waters of baptism according to the command of Christ? If so, then it seems to me that your faith is true. You understand it intellectually. You confess this is right and true doctrine, and I am relying wholly upon Christ. 
But you and I know that some who answer all of these questions in the affirmative may still struggle with assurance. They may still lack it. True Christians may struggle with confidence concerning the genuineness of their faith, even after answering yes to the questions that I have just stated above. And so how is it that we grow in our assurance that our faith is true and that we know Christ truly? How do we grow in that? How do we cultivate more confidence in Christ and assurance? And the scriptures do speak to this issue directly. In essence, they say that obedience to God's commands is evidence of a true and saving faith. I could take you to that very famous passage in Matthew 7, where Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. In that text, he is actually talking about how to identify false teachers, but the principle still applies. Just as a good tree will produce good fruit, and a bad tree will produce bad fruit, so too the one who is truly in Christ will produce what kind of fruit? Christ-like fruit. And there we have an evidence of the fact that our Faith is indeed true. We could also go to that passage in James 2, where James says that faith without works is dead. Clearly, there is a kind of faith that is true and a kind of faith that is untrue, a dead faith. Even the demons believe and tremble, James says in that passage. That's quite a statement. What is James saying there in James chapter 2? He's saying even the demons have a kind of faith. They know all about God and Christ, don't they? They might even know all about God and Christ to a higher degree than you and I do. But they do not have true and saving faith, obviously. They do not trust in and follow after Christ, bearing fruit and keeping it with repentance. Obviously, the faith of demons is not true and saving faith. But this is a kind of faith that many in the world have. That is, fruitless faith, faith without works. And this kind of faith is dead, the Apostle says. My favorite passage on the subject of assurance is actually 1 John 2, 3-6. through 6. I think it is a very beautiful passage. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. And a little further on, John says, By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so it is clear that the Apostle is addressing the issue of assurance here. Did you hear it? And by this we know that we have come to know Him, he says. If I were to rephrase that statement into a question, it would sound something like this. How can a person know that they know Christ truly? Or how can a person be sure that their faith in Christ is true? And what answer does the Apostle give here? He says, if we keep His commandments. And again, if we walk in the same way in which He walked. Do you know the Gospel? Do you confess that the gospel is true? Have you placed your, all of your hope, all of your trust in Him, abandoning hope and trust in all other, other things? Yes, I have, Pastor. I've, I've done all of those things. I still lack assurance. How do I get it? How do I grow in my confidence? Are you walking in the ways of Christ? Are you obeying God's commandments? Are you walking in the same way in which Christ Himself walked? Are you pursuing holiness? Well, no, I'm not. I'm living in ongoing, unrepentant sin. Well, brother or sister, if that is true of you, there's no wonder that you are struggling with a sense of assurance. You are professing Christ with your mouth, and yet you are denying Him with your life. The way to grow in assurance is to pursue holiness, to pursue obedience to the Christian life. And as we begin to progress in these things here, we will find that our assurance, our confidence in Christ, will grow and grow. 
The same apostle, I'm referring to John here, is, is very clear that true Christians do struggle with sin. No Christian is perfect in, uh, in, in his keeping of the commandments of God. None walk in the way that Christ walked perfectly. But with that said, the point the apostle is making is that uh, is the same one that Jesus made. True Christians will be known by their fruits. Holy living is an evidence of a heart that has been made holy by the grace of God. Christ-like living is a testimony to a true and lively faith. As we consider baby Jesus this Christmas season, brothers and sisters, may we also consider the whole of His life, His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. May we stand in awe not only of the virgin birth and of the incarnation, but also of all that Christ has accomplished for those given to Him by the Father from before the foundation of the world. And having considered all that Christ has accomplished, namely our redemption, uh, may we never forget how it is that we come to partake of the redemption purchased by Christ. It is through faith in Him. Faith that is a grace of God, it is true, but it is something that we must exercise. And so, friends, I am calling you to place your faith in Christ. I am calling you, just as the Scriptures do, to turn from your sins and to believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are in Christ, I am calling you to persevere in the faith and to urge others to believe as well. May the Lord give us opportunity to do that very thing this Christmas season. As we set our attention upon baby Jesus, may we have opportunity to say to ourselves and to others, Behold the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Believe upon Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for the mercy and grace that You have shown to us. We thank You that You have provided for us a Savior, we confess together that we did not deserve it, Lord. Uh, we did not deserve this, this grace from You. We did not earn it in any way, but You have freely given it. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have already confessed that Jesus is Lord and who have professed faith in Him. May they preserve in it, persevere in it to the end. Uh, Father, for those who are in Christ who are struggling with this sense of assurance, I pray uh, that you would help them to progress in this, that they would grow in their knowledge of the Scriptures, that their faith would be deepened in terms of their ability to say, yes, this is true. May they also grow in their ability to cast their life into the lap of Jesus, hoping only in Him. But Father, give us also progress in the area, in the area of holy living. May we keep your commandments, God, and thereby grow in this sense of assurance. And for any who do not yet know Christ, Father, I pray uh, that you would have mercy upon them, that you would draw them to faith by the power of your Holy Spirit as the Word of God is preached. Do a work within their hearts, Lord. May they turn from their sins and look to Jesus, trusting in Him and Him alone. May they follow through and in fact be baptized as a public profession of their faith in obedience to the commands of Scripture. God, nothing would please us more but to see this happen in our midst. God, we thank you for your faithful faithfulness to us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.